0: Welcome to Founder Stories, the podcast, conversations with David Adelsheim and the 10 founding wine families of Oregon's North Willamette Valley. During each episode, David Adelsheim, founder of Adelsheim Vineyard, will sit down with another early pioneer to recount the collaboration and formation of the Willamette Valley wine industry over the last 50 years. In this episode, David sits down with Ron and Marge Volstek, co-founders of the Oak Knoll Winery. Enjoy.
1: Ron Volsteck was working at Tektronix and teaching others to be home winemakers in the late 1960s. Marge was selling wine at Wine Art and bringing up their six kids. Their friends encouraged them to start making wine commercially. So in 1970, they purchased an old 40 by 120 foot cow barn, which became Oak Knoll Winery. They were making fruit into wine later that summer and by 1973, they had added wine grapes and became immersed in the growing wine industry. We talked with Ron and Marge at that original property on November 12th, 2020. Ron, it's great to see you here. I've been in this winery in a long time um, and it's great to be reminded of what humble beginnings we all had Um, back in the days of the the 1970s. I wanted to go back even before you had this building. You were making wine. What I want to know is, when you were growing up, did your family make wine?
2: Well, I I didn't know when I started making wine in the early 60s, because we had a bumper crop in in this big garden we have with all kinds of fruit and berries, etc that uh, after I started making wine, my dad said, did you know that your grandfather was a winemaker? I said, no, I did not know that. And my father was born in 1900 and, uh, in a little town uh, west of Bordeaux, and uh, my grandfather was a shoemaker. And when my dad was seven years old in 1907, my grandfather bought 10 hectares of uh, vineyard in Santa Mayon and became the village winemaker. Wow. And he was uh, the winemaker there until they, in 1914 they moved to Belgium to get away from the
1: Second or the First World War.
2: Yeah. So yeah. Th- there was, must have been a gene that popped out in me, <laughs> my grandfather.
1: Once you were born and came on the scene, your father wasn't serving wine all the time? I mean... No, no,
2: not at all. We, we very seldom had any alcohol at all in the house. So it was uh, in, in the early 60s when I started making wine. It was a new, new deal. Did you grow up in the Hillsborough area? I was born and raised in Forest Grove. Went to high school there, uh, and then later went to the University of Portland for a couple of years before before I went into the army, and then got out of that and uh, went to work for Tektronics and
1: with the that, training that you got from the army, I presume. Yes, right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yes, I was a, a regular repairman in the army.
1: So, a, so you were at Tektronix, and there was some sort of an. Amateur wine club, or
2: well, in the early '60s, there was very little uh, amateur wine making going on, and uh, this couple bought brought this uh, company uh, called Wine Art into Portland, and it was an amateur wine supply house, and Ann McCallum, the owner. Called me and said, "Ron, you make great wine. Why don't we start a wine club?" So we did. The first meeting was held, I think, it was in 1962 or 63, well, and we had a lot of uh, people, you know, that went through that wine club that later became part of the industry. Okay. Like well, Dicky Rath and Ron Johnson from Dion Vineyards—they oh, were members of our club. Yeah.
1: You made your first wine when you had a bumper crop in the garden. Yes.
2: Of some sort of fruit? or It was a blackberry wine, yes. And it turned out pretty good.
1: And what year was was that, do you figure? I believe it was in 1962. 62. Yes. And that was before wine art and the Ann Callum thing. Yes, right. So you started, you made wine that was not disgusting. Yes. And, and (laughs) well, we called it a low gag factor. (laughs) (laughs) What Took you from that to Ann McCallum hiring you? Did you just make a little bit more and a little bit different wine every year for a while? I started
2: experimenting about different wines, uh, everything from uh, any type of berry, blackberry, loganberry, even gooseberry, uh, dandelion wine, you know. Rhubarb, just just about anything. that And would, and you would had gone out. to
1: a college to learn about all this,
2: right? No, there was no college to learn that. Believe me, when I started, there was there was. I went to the library and found these books that were mainly uh, from England, and I, I I knew that you didn't use bread yeast to make wine, so there was definitely. Uh, a learning process for me, and I, I experimented a lot with how to make fruit and berry wine. And I, uh, because the, the berry wines have a higher acid and a lower sugar, so it, it takes a bit of uh, amelioration and uh, adding sugar to make the proper alcohol and, and make it a, a palatable product. Why were you doing this? Well, I was still working at Tektronix, so it was just a, it was a hobby thing, and then in the late 60s, my neighbor uh, also worked at Tektronix, and he said, Ron, you make great wine, why don't we start a winery? I said, well, yeah, we could probably do that. So we started looking and found this building, uh, it used to be called Dur- Burkhalder Dairy. It's an old dairy barn, a milking barn. It's 40 by 210 feet, uh, well-insulated building. So we bought the building, and
1: that, that's how wine, uh, Oak winery started. And up to that point, you were making home wine, in essence. Home wine, Hobby yes. wine, yeah. and people that were tasting it were telling you this is good enough, you should be selling this.
2: That's right. They said, yeah, you know, can we buy a bottle? I said, no, you can't do that because, uh, you know, I would get busted by the feds in the state on that. So I, I gave away a lot of wine though. So.
1: And it's my understanding that, so the, the Wine Art Wine Club Started before you bought this building. Is that yes, right?
2: Yes, definitely.
1: And you needed a winery license at wine art Yeah, in order to do that well, job as an
2: amateur wine back in those days Yes, you needed a federal permit to make amateur wine It was ridiculous in my estimation, but wow. I had to get this permit from from the BATF Saying that I, I was making amateur wine uh, I don't think it was very well enforced, but yeah. yeah. There wasn't a lot of tax dollars being That's lost. right. There, yeah. was, there was no tax involved. So.
1: <laughs> you buy this 40 by 220 foot barn. Yeah. What made you think that this could be a winery?
2: Well, we thought that it was, we, we looked at a lot of different properties, and this one had a building that, the walls were hollow clay tile. We could insulate the ceiling. And the uh, it was just a well-built building, it took a lot of uh, tearing out the old stanchions that the, they used to milk the cows in, and filling up the gutters with, with concrete, etc. And even the mangers were in concrete, so we covered those up to allow us to put barrels and tanks into the building. Yeah.
1: So as I get it, it's a it's a very long building, and yes. and the f- furthest away from here is where the grapes or the the fruit was received.
2: Fruit and grapes, yes.
1: And, and then the next, the middle third was kind of where tanks were and fermentation. Tank room, yeah. yeah. And then this is the Barrel room. This is the Barrel room, correct. And has this changed radically since uh, the late 60s? Oh yes,
2: it has. It was all open. There was no walls at all. It was one long building, and uh, we made a lot of mistakes in this building because we, we uh, bought a lot of runwood tanks, which really were not good for this type of wine that we were making, especially uh, the varietal wines, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, etc. So those, got, those left, we, we bought stainless steaks, that's what we're using now. So.
1: You're making home wine from fruit and berry, then you're making commercial wine from fruit and berry. I mean, the first, the first wine you made in 1970, 70. Yes. Were from from berries and fruits. That yes, right. Were yes. what was being grown in the area.
2: Right, correct. We would contract for, or buy from local growers. They would bring it in the flats and we would crush it, make the wine, yes.
1: Was it in your mind that you would move from fruit and berry to vinifera grapes or was that the furthest thing from your mind?
2: No, absolutely. That was right. That was number one in my mind. Uh, as a matter of fact, My first wine that I made out of vinifera varietal wine was in 1971, uh, a Zinfandel that we bought, found this little vineyard just uh, west of the Dalles. Yeah, yeah, very famous
1: vineyard. Right.
2: And we bought uh, five tons of Zinfandel and made that wine. our little wine press over in the, in the uh, other building, a small little wine press, was the only press we had. It took us about a day and a half to press that five tons out after it was fermented. But uh, it, was, it, it turned out pretty good. And just recently, uh, a guy told me, he said, I, I, I just enjoyed one of your old wines, a 1971 Zinfandel. And he said, surprisingly, it was very good. I said, wow, that's a really good old one.
1: <laughs> you knew about wine when you were starting up. I mean, oh, you didn't yes. know just about fruit wine. Yes. Were you were you and Marge then drinking vinifera wines from various places? Yes, by we, then?
2: we would enjoy a bottle of wine, mainly uh, with with meals. And we started, when I started making amateur wine, I was also buying wine, uh, enjoying some of the vinifera wines that... Like Pinot Noir, Cabernet, uh, Chardonnay, Riesling. So we, we, we got acquainted with that, and that's that piqued my interest, I think, in what I wanted to do with a winery. Not just make fruit and berry wines, but all types of wine. My my total thing was a wine for every palate.
1: So I assume that you bought this place, converted it, and made wine in 1970. Without having met any of the other people in the wine industry at that point.
2: That's about it. Yes. No. I I, I knew Dick Erath. We worked. Well, because at, you worked at. We worked at Tektronics together. together. Yeah. We spent many coffee breaks talking about making Got wine. It. So, and I even uh, helped Dick That's right, plant, you plant that. his first vineyard up uh, where he pulled out all those. Uh, uh, walnut trees, walnut
1: trees yeah.
2: and at a coffee break up there, or, or a wine break, or a beer break, I guess it was, planting those vineyards, Dick said, uh, you know, he says, this, this old walnut orchard, he says, I guess I should call my winery Chateau Monetto. <laughs> you know, they're a little, little levity and all that stuff, so, but we helped a lot of people get started in the industry.
1: You obviously, at at Tectonics, had the acquaintance with Dick Erath. There was the beginnings in the very late 60s of this group of vinifera people who were meeting and worrying about infected grapevines and other issues. When did you start being part of that organization?
2: Right from the beginning, David. Uh my my house was kind of centrally located so a lot of the meetings were held in my living room and and that was on this property on this property right, okay. right yes. yes and so uh it was centrally located where we met to decide where we were going with this industry that nobody thought was going to take off at all as we know but you know there was a lot of early those early days when we wanted to make sure that Oregon wines, vinifera wines, especially, meant something, and uh, we wanted to have an organization that we would th- think would promote not only the actual wine itself but the research and that would make the wines better. So we wanted to make a, a, start an organization, but. We wanted to call it the Oregon Wine Growers Association, but the people down in south and Roseburg had already taken that name. So we decided on a name called the Wine Growers Council of Oregon. And it was uh, an organization, a professional organization. You had to be either a, wine gr- a winery owner, winemaker, or uh, a, a vineyard owner to be a, even be a member. And they even said, well, you're know, Ron, you're that fruit and berry guy. I said, oh, but I made that Zinfandel. They said, okay, <laughs> you're in. <laughs> so, but we also uh, looked at, at other things like a commodity commission. Uh, we thought, well, this would be one way to get an organization going. We contacted Oregon State, and this guy named Jay Glatt was the... Uh, guy that handled all of the commodity commissions. We met with him for about an hour down at Oregon State, and he determined that we didn't have enough uh, tax revenue to even pay for the postage to start a, a commodity commission. So we gave up that idea. But l- l- later, uh, we we did so many good things uh, as as the Winegoers Council of Oregon we didn't know that we had such clout with like the legislature and the, and the governor of Oregon, good old Victor Tia, really helped us a lot in uh, like establishing the Wine, wine Advisory Board, uh, taxing ourselves, uh, also taxing people that were shipping wine into our state uh, for the promotion and research that we needed to, to, to become an industry that we have come now. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, the Table Wine Research Advisory Board was the result of us lobbying. It, it, it came into effect in 1977, and correct. You yes. were obviously part of that. I know I was involved. ERA, I in the was the
2: original member of the board, uh, wine advisory board. I, I spent eight years on that board. Yeah, and I spent many many more years uh, on the board of the Wine Growers or the Oregon Wine Growers Association. Yeah, so. You know, uh, a lot of travel, a lot of, a lot of expense uh, that we bore together to build an industry that we're damn proud of. Maybe.
1: Members of other members of the industry who you worked particularly closely with in those years, or was it kind of whoever was involved? I think it was pretty much involved with everybody.
2: Uh, it was such a small industry that everybody knew everybody, but I, I, I think probably that I should give credit to a group of people that just had vineyards. Like Ron Johnson at Dion Vineyards, uh, Jerry, well, Jerry Preston that started Amity Vineyards. I helped him plant vineyards up there too, I mean, my sons and I. And Bob McRitchie. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, 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 no. no. Uh, Bill Barron, some of these grape oh, yeah. growers, they were just growing grapes. They were not thinking of starting a winery. So those are the people that kept me going. Uh, Ron Johnson, I bought every grape that he grew for about the first 20-25 years and it was interesting because we never, I I don't think we ever signed a contract with Dion Bingertz. It was a handshake and a lot of the times we didn't even discuss price of of what we were playing for the grapes until we tasted the wine to see what they were like. So that's the type of relationships that we had between a grower and a winery.
1: And you never, you've never—I mean—you planted a few grapes around this building, right? Not the greatest wine vineyard site, <laughs> but almost everything that you've made has been from grapes that you purchased from other people.
2: That's correct. Yes.
1: And were there some advantages, and were there any disadvantages? To I
2: that? think the advantage is that I could I could pick and choose where the grapes came from and a lot of times I would get not get committed to a vineyard until I tried maybe a ton of Pinot Noir or Chardonnay to see what kind of character that particular vineyard had. And, and throughout our, our early days, we always kept these individual vineyards separate to see what kind of character they were. And then the, the real art was then coming up with maybe one or two wines, as you know, the blending is, is just the art uh, that can really make you or break you. you know. Right. So, but, but as far as I've vineyard myself, no. I, when I started, I thought, uh, I'm going to put all my effort into making the best wine that I can make. I'm going to buy the grapes and make the wine. And I feel that it's a full-time job making and marketing wine. Uh, let the vineyard grower know, do what he does. I'll do what my do.
1: I know at the very beginning, once you bought this cow barn, you still needed to get it licensed. And Washington County had no idea what to do with you.
2: Well, yes. I I, I applied for the uh, my liquor license with the uh, OLCC and they said, well, first, it's fine, but you have to go through the county first to get their approval. So I went to the County and they gave me the uh, uh, land use board uh, and they said, "Well, let's see. We can. The only thing that we have uh, that is even close to a winery is a brewery, and that has to be on an industrial property." I said, "Well, I'm sorry, but I'm what I'm doing is taking." Uh, an agricultural product processing it for loose. It's like uh, similar to like a prune dryer. A prune dryer takes his prunes, puts them through a dryer and sells them. That's exactly what we were doing. So I requested uh, to go before the Washington County Commissioners and plead in my case and they approved giving me uh, a five-year conditional use permit which I had to renew every five years for about 25 years till I finally uh, asked them if I could get a permanent, which they allowed. So By then they had a winery it, license. Yes, they had a winery that. license. So I set a precedent in Washington County that a lot of wineries should thank me for.
1: Was part of the original problem that you didn't have grapes here? because Ponzi didn't have as much trouble as you did because they were doing their winery at their vineyard.
2: Yes, right, I I think that was the main problem that I was not growing grapes. But I said again, it was like a prune dryer, you you could have a prune dryer that's not, you're buying prunes from individuals, they need to sell their product somewhere and that allows them to, and, and I also stated that there are vineyards going in right as we speak, To when I was talking to the Mushroom County commissioners, that are needing a place for their grapes to be processed. And I said, that's me. So they agreed. Thank goodness.
1: One of the most intriguing aspects of the Volstead family is you had six kids. Yes. And every one of them has ended up working in a winery at one time or another. And a couple of them are have been in the business for thirty or forty years at this point. Correct. Yes. Did Did you extract blood from them, or how <laughs> did How did this happen? I mean, there's uh, no other family that's done
2: that. Must have been the genes again from my grandfather, you know, uh, which would with been their great grandfather. But yes, uh, son Ron, uh, Ron Junior is a uh, winemaker down at Tudal Vineyards in the Napa Valley. Uh, Steve...
1: He uh, worked for my partner for Eugenia for a while, too, at Bush.
2: Right, yes. yes. Uh, he, he worked a number of places around Oregon before he, he took off for California. Uh, son John was worked here for many years, uh, got out of the business. Uh, son Steve was president here for a while and uh, couldn't see eye to eye with his father, so he decided to leave. So he, as as things do happen, and he went to work and was the general manager for Dick Rath for a number of years, almost 20 years. And when Dave, when Dick sold, he uh, my my son Steve became president of Saki One in Forest Grove. So he's still in the I guess wine business. Yeah, yeah, he
1: didn't go very far
2: from No, that. not at all, not at all. <laughs> My sons are definitely, and son Doug, uh, spent a lot of time at Rex Hill, and uncle, uh, cellar master at Sokol Blosser for a number of years. And when he was at Rex Hill, uh, Lynn Penerech, uh talked to me one time and he says, Thank, she said, thank you for allowing me to work with your son, Doug. He sure taught me a lot of how to make Oregon Pinot Noir. Well, <laughs> yeah, that was quite a compliment.
1: You know, we've been talking here, Ron, for a couple of minutes, and uh, my throat is actually pretty dry. Uh,
2: I, mine, mine is getting that way, too, David. Yeah. <laughs> I, I could use a little sip of that,
1: some of that good red stuff there. So, when you... Started making the Nifera wine. That was in 73, was it? 71
2: was the Zinfandel. Oh, when you made the Zinfandel, right. But my first Pinot Noir was in 73. That's right, yeah. Total disaster. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, but we've all had those, haven't we? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I got the grapes from uh, a vineyard out of Sweet Home, Oregon at, at the vineyard was at 1300 oh, elevation. Oh, yeah.
1: That, that'll uh, get ripe sometime next year. I th- That's exactly right. You know. <laughs> it made a
2: nice rosé, if that. The 74 was our first vineyard, vintage from Nyon Vineyards, and it was a lot better because it was, it come from about a mile and a half down the road. And the 74 and 75, that was before I had a, a malolactic uh, bug in my winery so we were looking at getting acids as low as we could and I remember uh, Ron Johnson bringing in the 75 Pinot it was 22 sugar at 0.75 acid almost perfect and it was just made just a perfect wine and like likewise the 76 which we have a bottle right here yeah that, that was again the epitome of uh, what Ron Johnson and I were trying to do. Well,
1: 76 uh, was a really good vintage on top of that. so That's, that's yeah.
2: for sure, yes. Yeah. We had a couple of real nice vintages right then yeah. there. Uh, in, I think it was 77, I bought some used barrels from, they said from Lafitte Rothschild, but I don't know where they came from. But I got a malolactic uh, bug in my winery that just won't quit. And ever since then, I've had no problem with making Pinot Noir, even though the acid's are a little high, so we can mellow it with the uh, malolactic ferment,
1: yes. Well, this isn't doing any good in the glass. I know. Here's to us, David. Uh, You betcha. Indeed, Ron.
2: Not too bad. (laughs)
1: Not indeed. That's lovely. From those early years where we were having to build an industry together, what part of that was critical to the success of Oak Knoll Was it the, the marketing work? You can make the best wine in the world, but if nobody buys it, you're in trouble.
2: So marketing is really, really very important. Um, those early days, uh, when I was uh, doing my marketing myself, uh, I would go out, contact uh, wine shops, gro- small grocery stores, etc., and take their orders and load up my truck. I'd call them on Monday, take their order, load up my pickup and deliver it myself. I was the marketing, winemaker marketing a little bit of everything at those days. That's how we got things going. In the late 70s, early 80s, I contacted uh, Safeway and they were very interested in my fruit wines. And that's really what got us going. We would bring pallets of of raspberry, loganberry, blackberry to their stores and put it in all the stores in the state. That's what got Oak going.
1: So for a period of time, was it the fruit wines that were supporting your vinifera habit?
2: Absolutely, yes, (laughs) right. That allowed us to buy barrels, buy grapes, because with fruit wines, there's really no lag time. You make it one day or one week or a month, and you sell it. Where vinifera wine takes a little longer, as we all know, uh, reds especially. Yep. You know, it's a year, year and a half, two years before you're selling it. So it's an investment. And th- at that time, the fruit and berry were, were really keeping us in business, you might say.
1: you were making a lot of fruit and berry wine once you had the contract with Safeway.
2: Yes, right.
1: When did the vinifera wines, the grape wines, exceed the fruit wines?
2: Probably in the late 80s, uh, I would say, you know, when we started getting some, you know, the late 70s, early 80s, we started getting some notoriety about our wines. And one of the things that really kind of made my day was when uh, I got a call from Robert Duran and he uh, came to my winery and I did a vertical tasting of, of my Pinot Noirs from 70, I think it was 79 to 83. He gave me the best compliment a winemaker could ever get. He said, Ron, he said, if I didn't know better, I would be in the cellars of Burgundy tasting these wines. Maybe I had a little bit to do with him coming over here starting a vineyard in a winery. I, I would like to think that
1: you, you, you certainly didn't scare him away.
2: No, we did not. No, not at all. <laughs> and he, he was here with his wife and daughter, Veronique, who takes care of the winery here for a beer. Yep. So those are the things that really make your day uh when you're trying to do something like we are David you know right.
1: over the years the winery has grown certainly to a level i know even in the mid 80s the the wines were being sold around the country mm-hmm. uh, the ownership or not the ownership the management has evolved as you step back from active duty if you will when did you, when did that happen
2: i think it was in the later 80s uh, had a little problem with the marital thing with my with my wife. The wine business is difficult on a lot of marriages. Believe me,
1: it, it I worked, maybe know what you're talking about. Working together
2: uh, so closely, it can be real dynamite. So uh, I think it was '88. I I turned the president or the presidency over to my son Steve, and he ran the, the company for about. I think 17 years before he left and went to, with Iran. So.
1: And and, did, and were you still making wine in that when period? I was still chairman of the board and
2: winemaker. Uh, uh, I oversaw every bit of winemaking and also uh, hired my cousin, Jeff Herrings. He, he, had my, he, he and my mother were first cousins, so Jeff and I are second cousins. And he came in as a cellar worker, became very interested in winemaking, and he became the assistant winemaker, and he is now the winemaker here at Oak Knoll.
1: Okay. Yeah. When When did you really stop having the role of winemaker?
2: Uh, about when I retired about
1: 14 years ago. Okay. Yeah. So about so 2006. 2006. Or...
2: 2006. Yeah. Yes. Right.
1: As you look back over what is really a very long period of time, what are the accomplishments of Oak Knoll that you are most proud of? Whoa,
2: boy, that's, that, that could be a quite a list there. Well, good. No, uh, probably one of the highlights of our uh, early days was, uh, I believe it was in 1985 or 86, we entered our uh, raspberry wine, and our 83 Pinot Noir Vintage Reserve uh, into the State Fair. We took top prize for both wines. Uh, at that time, it was called the Governor's Trophy. Then that was one of the high points. It just made made my made my day, you might say, because. Uh, Again, I've, I've always had that stigma of being the fruit and berry guy, but I, I think I've I changed a lot of opinions on that when nice. when I took and top that was, honors. And, that would have been
1: in 86. Was Vick no. still governor? Did he present you those governor awards?
2: Uh, uh, yeah, I don't think he actually did. The, it, oh. it was a governor's award. Yeah, it was secondary. That very same tasting or, or judging One of the judges was Andre Chelichev, the uh, winemaker of Bouillieu Vineyards, uh, one of the premier winemakers of uh, of all time, I believe, as far as California is (laughs) concerned. He was one of the judges. He called me the next day because he had to leave and didn't know whose wine it was. He found out and he called me and he said, Ron, he said, in searching for the ultimate Pinot Noir, for the last 50 years, he said, this one is near the top. What a, what a accolade. Yeah, uh, again, made my day. Yeah. so those are things that that you remember a lot, you know. The thing that, that I need to really convey is the cooperation we had in those early days. Um, I remember getting a call. I can't remember the year, but it was right... Near the end of Crush, and I got a call from Pat Campbell from Elko Vineyards, and she said, Ron, she said, my husband Joe's at work, and he said, I've got this tank of Riesling that it's just, temperature's going up, uh, my refrigeration system has failed, could you help me? I said, you got it. I got in my truck and immediately went up there, got my toolbox, and and... Found that it had a blown fuse. I replaced the fuse, got her going. Those are the things that that we we you know talk about. Yeah. We should tell about uh, because that was type of the type of cooperation that we had. And you, David, coming over here and looking at my Chrysler stemmer, saying, "Ron, get rid of that that must pump. You're chewing up seeds." You know, those are the things that uh what we were trying to do was help each other make the best wines because if there's a bad wine out there it's going to reflect on the old industry
1: well and and yeah. and, and frankly nobody was making so much wine that we weren't each other's our competitors there
2: was, there was no competition you yeah. know right yeah. that's exactly yeah. right yeah yeah so uh, it was a trying time but a great time to see to see the thing grow like it has it's just Mind-boggling. Yeah.
1: As you look back on the 70s and 80s, did you see a a regionalization in Washington County as compared to Yamhill County? Were there meetings of Washington County wineries without the Yamhill County people, or was it so small that we always mixed? I, I, I don't think there was any
2: real schism between the two counties, the Amhill County uh, Association really didn't fit it to a lot of people in Washington County, so they didn't join that type of organization. That was the only thing that I could see.
1: Yeah, and it took them a while for the Yamhill County Wine Growers, or whatever it was called, to become the Willamette Valley when it made sense. Right,
2: agreed. Yeah. But the Washington County, uh, I think, kind of Congealed because I think it was a lot because the Washington County Wives Association did a lot for promoting just Washington County rather than a regional type thing, right. so, which was a good thing. So,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, I'd like to thank you for. Taking a cold afternoon to <laughs> talk with us in this amazing old building
2: yes, that uh,
1: has so much history behind it. It sure does.
2: After 50 years of winemaking in this building, you know it's it, it's still going. You know we're still making wine, selling a little. You know uh, competition is, as you know, really tough out there nowadays with with all the new wineries in. Yep. But uh, I think to end this, David, I, I think you and I had no idea what type of things that we had started when, I think, five guys. There was you, myself, Dick Erath, Dick Ponzi, uh, and Dave Lett. we got to add Chuck Corey in there, too, because he was part of that, uh, that original group. Yep. That really started this whole North Willamette uh, thing that became Oregon wine. Right. Yeah, right. I think that that sums it up yeah, pretty it well. Certainly, it
1: certainly. It's hard to point out who who was more important, who was less important, <laughs> because we were all. It was kind of moving. I mean, on, yeah. on land use, Bill Blosser was important, and on. Technical yeah. things, Chuck Corey often led the, the charge, right. and
2: so no, it, it it was a it was a unified thing between uh, like five or six guys that really unified and made what we have today with with the legislation, with the rules about labeling, uh, all these things really added up to be what we have today, and passed on to not our. Children, but you know what Oregon is. Oregon wine is today. Yeah, yeah. One of my grape growers, Bill Barron, decided to make his own wine, and so he crushed his first Pinot Noir and aged it in French oak barrels like he should have. Done a great job. He bottled it and he brought a bottle down here and he said, "Ron," he said, "something's wrong with this wine." We opened it up, and I tasted it, and I go, whoa, I think we got a little H2S in there. I I got a penny out of my pocket and dropped it in the glass and swirled it around. I said, here, Bill, smell that. He said, oh, my God, that went right (laughs) The
1: magic of putting a penny in a glass of wine. (laughs) Yeah,
2: Yeah, right. So I told him about Blue Finding, and he did that, saved that vintage, That's how we cooperated back in those days. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, you bring up a really good point about people helping each other. I mean, in my early days, my winemaking teacher was Bob McRitchie at Sokolwasser, because he was the one with the PhD in microbiology and Mm -hmm. knew what he was doing. And I had no idea. Yeah. So, Yeah. And I'm sure that you served that function because you had so many years of practical winemaking under your belt
2: that's exactly it i've had I had nobody like you had Bob McRitchie. I had nobody yeah you know uh well Dickie Rath was but he was an amateur
1: winemaker too yeah i mean he so, was he was not no, ahead of you
2: no no not at all uh, another little thing that happened uh that kind of made my day was. Uh, knowing, being known as that fruit and berry guy, uh, I developed a lot of uh, interesting ideas about sugar acid balance in wines, and I played that really good in my berry wines because the acid is is high, and if you're going to dilute it out with water, you'll lose all the flavor. So I I would uh, leave the acid high. And then balance that with the sugar, or sweetness. And it, it really brought out some of the, the characters of those fruit and berry wines. But I was asked bringing a few of those berry wines down to the Napa Valley and letting a few people taste them. They thought, my God, these are just perfect, you know, super wines. And the extension agent at UC Davis asked me if I'd give a seminar on berry wines. So I did. I gave them about an hour uh, seminar, and there were a lot of the high-end California winemakers there. Uh, so it was kind of interesting to, to see that their uh, interest in uh, something like that. So. Yeah.
1: I mean, you told me on the phone uh, recently that making fruit or berry wine is a completely different process than making wine from oh, it, grapes. It's completely different technology, you know. Uh, like, if,
2: look, at the, look at the structure of a, of a raspberry or a blackberry. There's very little juice, but lots of seeds. If you ferment that on those seeds, you're going to get a lot of tannins out of there. So what I've learned is that uh, to extract the juice, it's almost impossible just to crush and press it but if you freeze the fruit it breaks the cellular structure and allows the juice to just flow and we use rifles as a press aid to allow us to get the juice out without getting too much contact with those seeds making a big difference in the final product yeah. wow so those are just little nuances that that i've learned through Trial and error, you might say. So it's very interesting. Did you ever freeze grapes? No, no, <laughs> no, 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 no.
1: But there, there are some grapes with enough tannin problem that I wonder if you should do that. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's true. But there's
2: usually not too much problem getting grapes to, to uh, give up their juice. Not like uh, well, if you ever try to press rhubarb, uh but freezing it. It just mushes out, and the juice comes out. But the the other deal with that is that there's a little color in the skins. It gives a little color to the juice. So I've made a lot of rhubarb wine, too. So, it, 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 you know, it's been a real interesting winemaking career for me to many for many, many different reasons, I guess yeah. you'd call it, you know. Not just, not just vinifera, but yeah. all the rest of the other ones, too. Yeah.
1: I mean, in the vinifera world, in, in the grape world, you had all these other people in the wine industry who you could talk to, who you could help with marketing ideas and yeah. uh, support research together. Did that exist in the fruit and berry world, too? Because there were a number of other wineries making fruit and berry wine when you started. Somewhat, but
2: not not nearly like the vinifera guys, I might call it, I'd say, you know. Uh, no, it was pretty much everybody with, with the, that were making fruit and berry wines were uh, setting their ways. I'm going to do it my way. I got my recipe that's going to wait this you
1: no know, it, it was pretty it's, a, it's an interesting dichotomy. <laughs> yeah. I wonder why that was but yeah, yeah right no, no
2: that was very little cooperation at that yeah yeah, not like the vinifera guys, which yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. thank God I was one of them <laughs> yeah
1: no, that's right
2: <laughs> yeah. anything else on your list I think that pretty well covers it, David okay. you know, so I was handed this list here of. Willamette Valley 2017 Pinot Noir got a bunch of con a bunch of bunch of medals here for my, my I should say our Willamette Valley Pinot Noir. The last one is the Oregon Wine Competition we got a gold medal on that sucker. So a couple, the you know, San Francisco Chronicle got a silver, and the Sunset International Wine Competition also got a silver. So. Uh, there are some interesting stories about wine competitions. One of them that's kind of interesting, Harvey Schaefer from Schaefer Vineyard Cellars, good buddy of mine, went to a lot of seminars together, etc. Uh, he was a grape grower and decided to make wine, and in 79 he was going to make his own wine, but had just finished his building his winery, he was painting the inside, fell off the ladder, broke his leg, and so he called me and he said, "Run!" he said, would you make my Pinot Noir for me? I said, sure, why not, why not, Harvey? So, uh, he brought his grapes over, and along with 10 Allier barrels, French oak barrels, new, brand new. We made the wine, put it in the new French oak, uh, after about 10 months, Harvey came over and we tasted that wine, and my God, the oak was just overbearing, as you would build. I had about the same amount of Pinot Noir, so we did a blend, 50-50. He said, boy, that's really a nice wine. So we did the blend, and I even bottled the wine here. We split the wine, and the, I think a year later or so, we both entered that in the Oregon State Fair. I got a gold medal; he got a silver. The exact same wine, so you can you can believe in in judging yeah. if you want. But yeah, those judges know exactly was, what they're doing. Harvey was not pleased. <laughs> yeah, so, I bet he was not happy yeah, about that. that's no, crazy. But anyhow, those are things you just never forget. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, I'm going to
1: drink to that.
2: You betcha! I'll drink to that too, David. Uh, thank you, Ron.
0: Thank you for listening to Founder Stories, the podcast. This episode was produced by Adelsheim Vineyard in partnership with House Below Productions. New episodes are released monthly, and you can find them on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Visit our website, adelsheim.com/slash/50years to watch full interviews of David Adelsheim with the other founders of the Willamette Valley wine industry. And join us as we pay homage to half a century of lofty dreams, pioneering spirits, and world-class wine.